Well, good morning and welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. And I don't know if anybody else out here has had the creeping crud in the last week, but it got me on Tuesday. So I am, my voice is about this far from being gone. And uh, so we're going to try to make it through. Is that good? That's always exciting. The one good thing you know is I'm not going to preach long today. So, um, <clears throat> but I'm going to kind of keep this doctored up uh, sweet tea that I've got going on here this uh, and to kind of get through this service. It is great to see you today. And if you take your Bible and turn to James, the book of James, chapter 2. I think it's page 1,174 in my Bible, uh, if that helps you at all. It really does help people from time to time. We've been in a series called The Chair. And uh, in this series, we have talked about, uh, the last two weeks we've been in Luke chapter 14, where um, we have talked about how Jesus was hanging out with some religious leaders of the day, and he basically talked about how chairs were important, where you sit is important. That chairs uh, reveal, uh, tell, they always tell a story. Uh, where you sit tells a story about you and about what's going on in your life. Uh, that chairs reveal character. He really talked about humility and generosity or the lack thereof. And uh, then as we muttered into last week, we talked about that the value of the chair is not in the chair itself, but rather in the contents that it holds because chairs represent people. And uh, today, excuse me, today we're going to continue on and uh, we're going to talk about, um, well, about two seats that should be in every church. Now, I'm going to sit down, if it's all right with you, and uh, just kind of have a conversation. Um, because what I want to talk to you about for the next few moments, something that we've all found ourselves in, in, at some point in time doing, and James talks about this, and it's called... Um, um, it's called basically judging a book by its cover. I'm sure you've never done that before. Uh, and church people definitely don't do that, do they? But, um, but the reality is, is that we can find ourselves in those situations where we can do that. And uh, James deals with this pretty, man, pretty head on. And um, I was thinking about this and thinking about some times in my life. And I remember in my early 20s being out with a, uh, with a group of buddies. And we were all at a restaurant. And... Uh, saying this is right, but this is just reality. Um, this uh, uh, guy walks in. I'm sitting there, and I can see the, the host is, is seating people, and there's this guy that walks in and, and just has the worst, the worst toupee I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was just, it wasn't on right. It wasn't, it didn't look natural. And I remember going and, and just kind of going, dude, check out that rug doctor. Check out that dude. Have you seen? Oh, my goodness. Did he look in the mirror? I'm not saying it's right. I'm just telling you reality. And uh, so, as, but as I was talking and going, and going on, everybody was kind of quiet. And I was like, I don't, usually these guys would chime in with me, right? And just throw somebody under the bus. And the guy starts making his way towards our table. And the closer he got, the more I could tell he's coming to our table. And I'm thinking, can he hear what I said? There's no way. It's across the restaurant. And when he got to our table, one of my buddies, who was a new friend, said, hey, Dad, how you doing? Son, it's good to see you. Oh, yeah. You ever felt like that? <laughs> Where you were just going, oh, man, I hope this shoe is clean because I'm fixing to put it in my mouth. I don't do that anymore. Um, or at least I know the people that I'm with. Because I, I had no clue, you know. 
And we've all been guilty of that, where we size someone up by an appearance or, or by the way they dress or by, or by the car they drive or where they live or their educational standing or all, so many things. And to, the Washington Post ran a story in uh, January of 2007, uh, very interesting on this whole subject. Um, and they talked about how that uh, there was a young man who went uh, uh, that January 07, it was, a, it was a cold morning, went to the D.C. metro station there in Washington, D.C., and pulled out his violin, and over the course of about an hour began to play some of the most intricate uh, pieces uh, that uh, Bach wrote. And over the course of that hour, um, there were about 2,000 people that they estimated that went past him only six people stopped. Without fail, every parent who had a child, who the child began to hear this, began to be, to, was gravitated towards it, the parents would pull them back away and hush them away. It's like, you don't do that. And uh, at the end of the hour, the guy uh, had no applause, no recognition. Somebody, through the course of that hour, they had thrown in about $32 and a hat sitting in front of him. And Josh Bell, who was one of the greatest violinists of our time, had just packed out a symphony hall in Boston at $100 a seat, decided to see what it would be like if he found a different venue to pull out his $3.5 million violin and play for passerbys. Nobody stopped. Nobody listened. Because nobody knew who he was. Because everybody kind of sized him up as here's one of those guys that's just going to play for money, that's just going to kind of hang out. And the Post did a great article on this. And, and, and it just makes me think how we find ourselves in these situations where, where we judge people, where we size people up, where we make decisions about people without knowing anything about them. And it's not just something that happens out in the world. It's stuff that happens inside the church. And so James talks about this in James chapter 2. And I want to begin reading in uh, James chapter 2 starting in verse 1. He says this, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism, period, just declarative statement, verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, if you show special attention to the man wearing clothes, the fine clothes, and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you can stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. Verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Skip on down to verse number 8. If you keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, I want to kind of motor through this before we get to the notes on the back side of your, uh, uh, of your bulletin. But in verse 1, he makes a statement right from the very beginning that kind of talks about this judging a book by its cover. And he says, he's speaking to Christ followers here, that uh, this thing called favoritism is wrong. Now, you have to give a little context. James is writing this book in the context of the first century, somewhere around 65 to 70 A.D., so about 30 to 35 years after Jesus has died. The church now is becoming established, and that's the problem. When the church is young and new, it has much more dependency upon God. As it begins to grow and becomes established in any setting or situation, it can become more introverted and focus on itself. 
And he is speaking here to Christ followers. That's a lot of who I'm talking to today. And he uses this word in verse 1, favoritism. That word favoritism in the original Hebrew language that it was written in basically means this. It's not just showing special attention to someone, but it's exalting one person at the expense of another. It's lifting someone else up at the expense of putting someone else down. It's showing favoritism this direction to build somebody else at the, at the expense of pulling someone else down. So it's not just building somebody else, but it's tearing them down. And as you, I don't have time to go into this and do a whole message on favoritism this morning, but as you look through these verses, you, you find out why it's wrong. Favoritism is, first of all, it's inconsistent. This isn't in your notes. It's, but it's inconsistent to the teachings of Christ. Verse number four says it comes from evil thoughts. Have you ever wondered where this favoritism thing comes from? It's because you have evil thoughts. And if you ever play favorites with people, that's what it says right there in verse four. It comes from evil thinking. It's also a byproduct of selfish motivation. Uh, you are, are not we show favoritism towards people, not for the sake of that person, but for the sake of what they can do for us. Uh, and also it shows a lack of mercy. It shows a total disrespect. And, 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 and verse 5 goes on to tell, tell us that it belittles the person that's made in the very image and likeness of God. That when we show favoritism that exalts one person at the expense of someone else, that what we're actually doing is putting down a person who's made in the image and likeness of God. Because you realize every person on this planet bears the image and the likeness of God. And the only thing that God ever created that bears his image is humanity. Nothing else does. Everything else bears the work of his hands, but the only thing that bears his image is you and me. That's why we're so important. And so it also goes on in verse 8 to say it's hypocritical for you as a Christ follower to show favoritism. And verse number 9 lays it straight out. It's sin. You are a lawbreaker. You are going straight to hell for that kind of stuff. And, and so it, he's very straightforward with that. Now in verse 2, he says, he begins to sh- kind of show this, this uh, almost like a parable, if you would, but, but a little bit more of a metaphor. And, and, and he uses that they're going to a meeting. Now that word meeting in the original language is the same word that would be used for synagogue. So what James is wanting you to understand is they're not just going to a social event or a gathering or a work party. They're not going to a neighborhood committee meeting, right? This isn't like a neighborhood block party. They're going to church. These people are on their way in church, and the setting is at church. Now, we both know because both of these individuals, the rich man and the poor man, both have to be directed to their seats, so they're both guests. We can infer that from the text. And as you go on into verse number 2, he begins to talk about the attire. Now, this is interesting, too, because I didn't really know a lot of this until I really got into this passage, and I honestly had never really thought a lot about it. Because when, we read, when I read the Bible, I read it from my Western uh, perspective. But what was happening is that uh, they were judging based upon status. And the, the clothes, the attire, basically told the tale. And we all get that and we understand that. But you have to understand, in Roman culture, which is where this is, this is set, um, that money was the least thing that was a status symbol. That's not the true in our, in our culture. In our culture, you can be raised in the poorest of the poor. And you can have some great idea, build some great company, uh, have some great skill or talent, and, and make millions of dollars. And the more money that you make, the better off that people treat you. And you can also be born into a very upscale family and, and, a, and, a, and an upper-class family. 
but to lose all the money that you have and find yourself sinking down, 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 down to you're in the poverty level, and people will treat you completely different. So when we read this, we go, yeah, this guy has, has this is a have and have not story. There's more to it. Because in Roman civilization at that time, uh, part of it is there were basically three requirements for, for, uh, for status. First of all was the class that you were born into. So if you were born into a high-class family, then, then, then you were automatically in that echelon. But if you were not, it didn't matter what your looks were like, what your talents were like, you were stuck. And, and the only basic, ah, that, that's one of the reasons why people love coming to America because of the fact that um, in coming here, you had the ability to be able to go and move forward and develop and grow. But like if I took you to India, there's still a caste system that goes on. That if you're born into a particular uh, family or uh, a caste, uh, what we would call a class, you're stuck. And, uh, and so this was very prevalent in the first century. The second thing that, that established status was the family that you were born into in that class of people. So, so the reality is, is, that, is that you not only had to be born into the right class to be respected, but you also had to be born into the right family in the class. Again, these aren't total ideals that we, we deal with. Uh, and then the third of which was money. Excuse me. But just because you had money didn't mean that you trumped the other two things. And, and honestly, there was no middle class in this culture. Uh, scholarship says that somewhere around 8% of the, of, of the culture of the day were what would be considered upper class. Only 2% would be considered middle class. And 90% would be considered low class. So, 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 but James goes on to say in verse 3 that the problem is not with the difference of the people. This is in your notes. But the problem, J, James says, is that there's only one seat. There's only one seat. I'm going to explain this in just a second. There's only one seat. And, and what, what that brings out in verse number four, why is this wrong? Because then you, the church, becomes the judge of who's going to sit in that one seat. And whenever you and I exalt ourselves to become the judge, we become like God. Or so we think. And so, you know, the Bible says that God is God and he will have no other gods before him. Commandment number one. So anytime you and I sit in the seat of judgment of someone else, we show favoritism, which exalts one person at the expense of someone else. Based upon external things that are happening, um, we become judge. And in doing so, we sin. Because we begin to take God's place. Now, we get this in a Sunday school setting. But in real life, everyday living, and in church sometimes, we don't always practice this. And here was the problem. The problem was this class system, this status system, this hierarchy existed very prevalently in culture, but it had not existed in the church. And here's the reason why. Because for the first 30 years that the church existed, these people were running for their lives. These people were running from city to city. They were, they were going to be killed. Um, you know, Nero would, uh, the, the Roman emperor of the day would, would take these Christians and would, and would impale them upon poles and, and line uh, the, the drive going to the palace and soak them in kerosene and light them on fire to, to illuminate uh, his parties. Uh, they would throw them into the Colosseum there in Rome and would, would make sport of them and, and would ridicule them. And it was a way that the Roman government wanted to keep its, its thumb down and even to ridicule these Christians, these Christ followers. Um, and so, so this is, this is, so for the first 30 years, they, they've been running, man. They, they've been on the other side of the tracks. But what's beginning to happen is that they've become more accepted. They've become more part of the, of the culture. And what's happening is the culture out there is beginning to creep into in here. 
What's happening out there begins to come into here. And I'm not going to give you a whole message on holiness. I'm actually working on a series on that. Because I think sometimes, uh, and again, I don't mean to be, you know, we're, we're weird or uh, peculiar in a way that is, 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 is goofy or that, that the church becomes a bunch of fruits, flakes, and nuts. You know what I'm talking about? Even around churches that are just kind of weird. and Yeah, okay. Um, but, but the deal is, there is a thing called holiness and purity. And, and what James is saying is, look, what's happening in the world is now starting to creep into the church. What's going on out there is beginning to affect in here. And we cannot have that. Because if that culture begins to affect our culture, we're doomed. Why? Because it's wrong and it's sin and it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's all these. So he begins to deal with these subjects. And, and, and so what's the solution to this? Well, I would tell you that the solution, based on this passage of Scripture, is that there should be two seats in every church. I, and that's in your notes. So there should be two seats in every church. And, and, that, and that every church has, should have two seats. So let's, let's talk about this. And these seats, they're not based on money or status or wealth uh, or name or uh, finance or education. Um, there's two seats. The first seat I want to talk about is uh, the seat right here. It's called the your welcome seat. And um, this seat is, um, is a seat that you help provide. Your welcome seat are um, seats that basically, we talked last weekend about four different types or three different types of people that, attend the, that should attend a local church, that mature people in, in their faith in Christ, new people that are new in their faith in Christ and new, or new to the faith community, and, uh, or, um, or people that are totally uh, outside God and, and uh, they're sinners. And I, I'm not meaning that condescending. That's what the Bible calls them, that they're away from God and apart from God. And just a parenthetical thought here. There were about 18 of you last weekend that said, man, I'm sitting in that red seat. And I just want to say, uh, you should have received, received an email from me, just from me to you, saying thank you for your courage and thank you for, for, for that. And, and I'm praying for you and I'm going to continue to pray for you. Your name is on my prayer list. I'm calling your name out in prayer regularly. And I want to make myself personally available to you. If I can help sit down and have a cup of coffee or, or talk to you about where you are on this journey and that we welcome you. And uh, so there were 18 of you that had some big-time guts to say, yeah, preacher, I'm the one, so just put a target on my back. And, and I just want to say thanks. But, but, but those are three different types of people that sit in the church. But the people that sit in this seat, are, uh, they're the mature Christ followers. These are the people that the church is, how do you say this? Uh, they're people that are just, they're sold out. Uh, man, they're, they, they're, they're involved in ministry. They're regular attenders. Uh, they're involved in life group. They're involved. They're on mission with the church. They bring the tithe. They, they resource to the best of their ability. And, and, uh, and, and they're, they're the people in every church that help provide the seats that you're sitting in. And, 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 and you know, and, and the church is growing rapidly. But, but back, you know, just kind of going back to uh, the first year or so when the church began, you know, the people that would sit in the seat were people like uh, Kathy Christ and Mike Rockwell and uh, Barb Booth and the, the Hoyer family and the Enfields and the Pribiniches and the Heisers and the Rons and the Snows. Man, there's so many Snows in this, fam- in this church. And uh, the Scanleys and, you know, and the, the Fromsteins and the Webers and the Seiferts and the Galganites. Uh, these families, they, they were people that were sitting in this chair and that said, we believe that there should be a church like this in Germantown. We don't just believe it. We will help. We will, we will move, help start this church, plant this church, and do this. Because we believe there should be seats available. 
And so they came in and they did that. And since then, all the way through now, there's been all different types of families, many of you in this room, that you sit in this chair. That every week you are, you're here helping build the kingdom and you're, you're here establishing this. And, and this is what it's all about. You're, the, you're welcome people. Uh, you're the people that make this happen. And can I just say something? The people that sit in the you're welcome chair are not fat cats with a lot of money. Sometimes I think there's this misnomer that goes on in church world that there's just a few people that write some big, fat, nasty checks. And I, if you want to be the first, that'd be great. But that doesn't happen. Uh, the, the reality is it's people that will get up tomorrow, go to work, work in an eight-hour or ten-hour or however-many-hour day, go home, have dinner with their family, you know, watch a little football or, or hang out, play with the kids, whatever, and go to bed and get back up and do it the very next day all over again. That's the people. Just solid, everyday, middle-class, working folks that make this thing happen. And can I tell you, any church that's great, that's how they're built. Great churches are not built by a few elite people. But they're just built by just a band of people that just say, hey, and that just grow and, and develop and, and, and just say, I'm just going to give my time, my talent, my treasure. You're welcome, people. And here's the deal is this seat's found in most churches in America because buildings don't get built and parking lots don't get paved and nurseries don't get furnished and seats don't get purchased and the air doesn't get turned on and, and the lights don't get turned on without people that sit in this seat. So we do real well with this seat, right? We, we accommodate this seat. Come on with me. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching. Good. But the problem that they had with James is that James was having with the church is that there was a lot of these seats available, but there wasn't a lot of the other seat. And that seat is this seat. It's called the thank you, the thank you chair. And uh, these are people that sit in this chair that didn't help provide that are here sitting in this seat that quite frankly, they're brand new to this faith community. Maybe they're away from God and, and are just kicking tires on this thing called faith. Maybe they got invited. You know, there were 10 people last weekend in the three adult services that gave their life to Christ. Adults. They gave their life to Christ last weekend. And they walked in and they had a seat because the people that said in the your welcome seat made sure there was a thank you seat. And every one of you in this room, you're sitting in one of these two chairs today. You're either a person that's helping provide seats or you're a person that's sitting in a seat that you did not provide, but yet it's a blessing to you because your life is being changed. And this was the problem in the first century. James is saying, hey, don't forget, we have to have thank you seats. Don't forget, there needs to be a place for people to come and sit regardless how much money they make or they don't make, regardless what their social standing is, regardless what the color of their skin is, regardless if they look like us, smell like us, walk like us, talk like us, or have nothing to do with us. There has to be a seat. Because if there's not, then you're going to discriminate. And that discrimination, this is way before civil action and, and uh, affirmative action and, and all that. If not... You're sitting in the seat of judgment and you're showing favoritism. This seat's why we exist. That's why the people that sit in this chair get it. The thank you seat's why we exist. If you're here today again, the thank you seat, don't, don't say, oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You're why we got up and got all cleaned up today. This is what it's here. I was at a luncheon this week with some community leaders that if I said their names, those of you who live in Germantown would know who I'm talking about. And the conversation came up. We were at uh, First Alliance Church, and Jason Esposito, who's the pastor there, is doing a great job. 
And they're right now in the process of trying to build a, a new facility because they are maxed out. And uh, they're trying to do that. And we were talking, and they had plans up on the wall and all this kind of stuff. And they were talking. And, and one of the, it was just about three or four, half dozen people that were standing around talking. And, and one of the made a, community leaders made a comment. Well, you man, you guys, your churches are both growing. And they said business is good, you know. And uh, didn't really understand church, but got it. Business is good and, and all that kind of stuff. And before long, there won't be enough seats in Germantown. I mean, there won't be enough people in Germantown. You're going to have to go outside of Germantown to fill your seats. Ha, 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 ha. We all laughed. And I, then I looked and I said, I said, you know, that's interesting that you said that. Because I did a survey about a year ago and found out that if every seat in every church in our city was filled... For every time, every service that was offered, there would still be about 15,000 people just in Germantown, in the village of Germantown, that would have no seat to sit in. And they went, really? And I said, yeah. So we, and I looked at him, I said, so he and I can't build it fast enough, but you can help us. You know, I was taking up an offering right there. And uh, <laughs> I'm shameless. And, um, and, you know, but I can see, it, but that's the truth. And we, th- we don't think that way. Do you realize that if this city got up this morning and said, we all want to go to church, we don't have enough seats? Not just us, but every church, every church in the phone book, it's in the village of Germantown, we don't have enough seats. I mean, we we barely have 25% of the seats. And so the deal is, is that this is why we exist. This is why next weekend, I'm telling you, Asking you, double dog daring you to take that invite card and invite someone with you to Life Church. To take that invite card and invite someone that you've invested in relationally. And to simply ask them to come. To simply, and you can do it this way. Look, my pastor has been harping on this for weeks. He will not shut up. And I told him that I would do this, so I'm doing this for him. Would you come to church? Well, it didn't matter to me how you invite him. But that you invite people to come sit in these seats. Because I'm believing next weekend that there's going to be a couple hundred people sitting in the thank you seats. And we're going to have fun with giving away, you know, Packer tickets and Bucks tickets and airline tickets and restaurant tickets and movie tickets and all kinds of cool stuff. We're going to have fun with that. But the whole reason is just to have fun, to set an environment and an atmosphere in order for you, your welcome people, to invite thank you people to come in and sit in and maybe hear a life-changing message. That's it. That's what it's all about. That's why we exist. That's what we're here for. And, and so I'm challenging you. I'm asking you that if you sit in the your welcome seat, that you will grab. We've been giving you communication. I mean, these little uh, invite cards every week, that you will take that and that you will invite someone. If you live in the 53022 zip code, you're going to get a mailer that we sent to every home in Germantown inviting them to church next weekend. Uh, If you're on the church mailing list, you'll get the same mailer. But every single person that lives in the 53022 zip code will be invited to come because we want to fill these thank you seats. Because here's the problem. If all we have is your welcome seats, we're just like the church that James talks about. We got to do better than that. We got to provide seats for people that don't have the ability to give, people that don't have the ability to serve, people that have yet to come to faith in Christ, people that are outside the walls of the church. Jesus said, go into all the world and to compel them, to draw them, to bring them in.
This has been a passion of mine for a long, 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 long time. And this is how I want to end the service. Um, in 1987, I got this book by Charles Swindoll called The Seasons of Life. And um, it was given to me by uh, a cousin of mine who uh, is a Southern Baptist minister. He served on staff at Second Baptist with Ed Young Sr. and then went on to serve at um, Dallas Baptist University on their faculty and part of their leadership. And uh, I had expressed the fact that God had called me into vocational ministry. I'm a sophomore in high school at this time. And so Christmas of that year, they gave me this, this book by Chuck Swindoll and wrote in the, in the, in the, in the flap of the book. And, and um, I've always had a passion to see people come to faith in Christ. But uh, uh, yeah, it's a little stitch, one of those little cross-stitch bookmarks with my name on it. And total 1980s. And... Uh, I came to page 98, and honestly, I've never read beyond there because it stopped me, and it shaped me, and it spoke to me about the subject of not just having your welcome seats, but having thank you seats. I was raised in a church that had plenty of your welcome seats. You can write the check. We have a seat for you. You're a mature Christ follower, and you can walk and talk and behave the way we want you to. We got a place for you. But if you're a thank you person, you're going to have to go through a screening committee. That always bugged me. And I read this, and, and this is why we do thank you seats. I'm going to read it for you, and then we're all close. On a dangerous seacoast, notorious, sh- notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was merely a hut with only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch on the turbulent sea. And with little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night tirelessly searching for those in danger, as well as the lost. Many, many lives were saved by this band, by this brave band of men who worked faithfully and worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. And by and by, it became a famous place. Some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. So they were willing to give their time and their energy and their money in support of its, ob- its objectives. New boats were purchased, new crews were trained. The station that was once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy that the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough handmade equipment was discarded and sophisticated classy systems were installed. The hut, of course, had to be torn down to make room for additional equipment, furniture systems, and appointments. By its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place, and its objectives had began to shift. It was now used as a sort of clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, and calming the disturbed rarely occurred by now. Few members were now interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired a professional lifeboat crews to do this work for them. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, the life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decor. In fact, there was a little liturgical lifeboat preserved in the room of sweet memories with the soft, indirect lighting, which helped hide the layer of dust upon the once-used vessel. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty, some terribly sick and lonely. Others were black and different from the majority of the club members. The beautiful new club suddenly became messy and cluttered. A special committee saw to it that a shower house was immediately built outside and away from the club so that the victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. 
At the meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings, which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities and all the involvements with shipwreck victims. It's too unpleasant. It's a hindrance to our social life. It's opening the door to folks who are not our kind. As you'd expect, some still insisted upon saving lives. And this was their primary objective. That the only reason for their existence was ministering to anyone needing help, regardless of their club's beauty, size, or decor. They were voted down and told if they wanted to save lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As years passed, the new station experienced the same old changes. It evolved into yet another club, and yet another life-saving station began, and history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline, owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement with, saving of, with the saving of lives. Shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but now most of the victims are not saved, and every day they drown at sea, and so few seem to care. So very few do you. As a kid in high school, knowing that God had called me in the ministry, I placed my bookmark there and I shut that and I began to pray and ask God, God, if you want me to go into ministry and if you want me to pastor and preach, I'm cool with that. But I don't ever want to become the country club. I don't ever want to become the place where you have to have a certain kind of people and a certain kind of thing. I don't ever want to become that place. I don't ever want to become a church that just is filled with your welcome people. That we treat people that pay the bills and do all this and that we become focused on ourselves. But rather that, God, that we always have room for people that don't have. People that can't give. People that can't, that don't know. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today?